0: Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's
1: quince.com slash upgrade. Listener, if you are in any way squeamish, the following hour could mark a low point in your week. What is the object that looks like an octopus but has a fingernail attached? How do you make a jawbone puff up? And what is the least sensible use for an anti-aircraft shell? Answers to these questions and many more as we head to Bart's Pathology Museum. It's the 18th of April 2014. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe and this is Londonist Out Loud.
0: Hey baby, let me take you down So we'll face some strange sights and the sand. You ain't never seen the light before Just a song through from your front door
1: Day is streaming in through the skylights of today's location onto a capacious hall. And on three tiers, it's bedecked with all sorts of gruesome artefacts. Perhaps (laughs) my guest is pointing at herself and saying, what are you talking about? No, (laughs) we're at Bart's Pathology Museum, and Carla Valentine is here with me. Hi, Carla. Hello. I think one of the interesting uh, questions that we were weighing up as we started to prepare for today's show was actually where to begin. And maybe we'll come to that in just a moment, because there's not the obvious chronological answer to that that there is in some other museums. But we should probably take one step back before that. It's a museum of pathology. What is pathology? And Maybe we need to get a definition there.
0: Well, pathology is actually the study of death and disease. And I think there is a misconception that a pathologist is just someone who does autopsies, particularly for uh, crimes, and people who watch Silent Witness and CSI would think that's what pathology is. But it is also histology, haematology, looking at disease and how to treat it. So pathologists are very, very important in the front line of treating disease.
1: And The collection that we can see here was established and continues for what reason?
0: It was established, well, in 1879 is when this building was purpose-built, but the specimens all sort of came together over the course of maybe 100 or so years before. The reason was because diseases would be seen in cadavers during dissection as medical students were training, but um, they were very rare, they couldn't really be photographed, so there needed to be a record of those diseases so that when doctors saw them again, they could recognise them. So it's a teaching facility and it's still used for the same sort of teaching nowadays.
1: So you you still have people coming in here, hordes of uh, students, noting a diseased liver and that kind of stuff?
0: We do have some and uh, what we've noticed is there's definitely been an increase obviously over the two years that I've been here um, because the specimens have been repaired and the place is a lot um, nicer, a lot brighter but also because things do come full circle and the reason the collection sort of fell into a a bit of disrepair in the first place was because virtual reality became a bit more sexy You know, um, students weren't required to use the collection now they're starting to use the collection by choice
1: Ah, right. Okay, that's very interesting. We we were at the Grant Museum, and I know that having the bones in your hand there and being able to manipulate them is really essential for somebody who wants to work with limbs that have still got the flesh on. But does the same sort of need apply here, or is VR running the risk of putting you out of business?
0: I would say the need is absolutely essential with human beings. Uh, my curator, Professor Demetrio, says that you can't be a car mechanic without sort of fiddling around with a car engine uh, and it's the same thing i mean you can't use virtual reality um, to learn anatomy unless you're going to treat virtual patients so there is that sort of move now towards using the pots again to see you know the real flesh the real tissue and um, the real pathology and obviously apply that to the human beings
1: um <clears throat>
0: nothing would put us out of
1: business (laughs) (laughs) Uh, now I should mention that we're here uh, not merely because you're one of those places on the I think the London scene because I mean there's a whole thing to open up here which is that this is not a staid institution at least as far as your public outreach goes my inbox is regularly added to by emails from you guys with very strange sounding events and I'd love to unpack some of those in fact there's a a great one coming up that we're going to talk about and all of it rather left field but I'm aware that because we've had listeners requesting it that this place has got a bit of a cult following maybe an occult following I'm not entirely sure it might lend itself to that what sort of visitors do you find yourself picking up?
0: Well, I think uh, Museum of London describes it best in a recent report, and they said Bart's Pathology Museum has um, attracted cultural connoisseurs and London insiders, um, intellectual people who want to learn something at the same time as have a glass of wine. And I think that's the important thing here. And what people don't realise is that even during the Victorian era, when medical museums were popular, they were actually considered quite civilised places to go on a Friday night, have a group of men and possibly some women, have a drink and chat about pathology and medicine so we're not doing anything very different here again it's the cyclical nature of learning um, we're just kind of revamping what used to happen so what we like to do is make sure that we appeal to so many different demographics and that way we can use pop culture as well as pathology and medical history etc
1: what sort of thing might we see here what have you had on the calendar recently
0: Well, for example, we had an anniversary of the death of Marilyn Monroe event. So that combined pharmacology as well as, you know, popular interest in pinups and in movies. We had somebody who knew Marilyn Monroe in life. He was a journalist and he talked about how she was in life and his experience of her. And then we had a pharmacologist who discussed her death, um, whether or not he thought she was poisoned. We were able to use some of the forensic specimens that we have, which show barbiturate ingestion. So, in that way, way we were able to bring together so many different types of people and they would learn and cross-learn and have a discussion at the end.
1: This occurred to me while you were talking that, in a way, you're keeping alive that whole medical tourism thing that you see in uh, pictures from what 100, 200 years ago, where you've got a, not just students around the dissection table and a tiered around, but also I think members of the public were in there as well, and it was I, I suppose it was not a far cry from going to the gallows and or the chopping block or whatever it might be. Does that sort of sense of voyeurism linger a little bit in this?
0: Well, I don't think it does. And I think the difference is that a dissection, a public dissection, is completely different. I mean, here, obviously, these organs have already been taken. They've already suffered that indignity a couple of hundred years ago. There's been no consent form. Um, so if they were to be left and not used for education and to bring people together in the way that we are, to me, that's, that violation is a waste. So I think uh, the atmosphere of a public dissection is completely different.
1: How close do your ethics get to those of somebody like Gunter von Hagens or somebody who's, it seems to me, a little more sensationalist?
0: I think there is just an element of um, curiosity and voyeurism, obviously, in what Gunter von Hagens does. The plastination process itself has actually been really valuable for medical students because universities can plastinate organs and then they can be handled without gloves by students. So that in itself is a good development. Um, But I think for money as paperweights is a completely different aspect of what Gunther Van Hagens does. Does he do that? He does do that, yeah. And that's obviously not what we're about. We're about education. Um, We don't want to offend anybody. All of the specimens down on this floor are well over 100 years old. So nobody would come in here and recognise a specimen for example it's really more about using them rather than letting them decay because to me that's a, a bit more offensive because they gave such a gift in the first place the atmosphere with public dissections was that the doctors who actually carried them out really didn't like doing that and that was because the dissection itself was seen as a punishment and the surgeons didn't want to be seen as somebody meeting out a punishment because sorry punishment for who for the person who was dissected because it mainly used to be criminals so surgeons didn't want to be associated with dissection of a criminal as a kind of punishment giver which is a completely different experience to what we have here dissections have occurred here for medical teaching alone so there isn't that same voyeuristic kind of um, atmosphere as there would be in a public dissection which was a punishment for the for the cadaver who was suffering the dissection
1: so the the stuff that we're seeing around us and i should describe it at first glance apart from the odd bust or skull i would say the majority of what we can see here is encased in glass cylinders or boxes and most of them whilst they might look like bits of organ you you certainly wouldn't wander in here and go that's uncle uh, jeremy's (laughs) pancreas you've got there what proportion of the previous owners of these uh, organs and so forth had any idea that bits of them would end up here
0: what proportion of the these guys. Um, I mean,
1: is, it, is it fair to say that all of these have been uh, br- brought in w- without the prior consent of the owners?
0: Well, actually, all of them except one, one that I know of. Um, we had a, an illustrator here called Leonard Portal Mark and he was uh, an illustrator of diseases and death and you can see some of them in the um, room dividers and he actually stipulated that he would like parts of his body to remain here after he was gone and we do have his skull, his hand, um, several of the parts of him and the reason he wanted to be displayed here was because he had acromegaly which is something that you know a lot of people do have a good specimen to
1: have in the museum what is acromegaly
0: so that's the disease that um for example lurch from the adams family had it makes people grow a lot taller they have very thick bones a very sort of low deep glottal voice long club-ended fingers um quite pronounced brow ridges
1: yeah right this is where uh, you get the ideas of giants from uh, quite often
0: yeah it's quite similar to gigantism as well so um and it's obviously an endocrine disorder so he wanted to have himself displayed here for the the rest of these students
1: Well, that's interesting. I I can't wait to uh, jump on a specimen. I guess I've got one uh, final question before we do, which is, have you got your eyes on any exhibits that you'd like to have here that you don't? Because of course, what we've been discussing so far, you can't help thinking of uh, the elephant man whose name escapes me right now.
0: Well, the elephant man is actually in our sister hospital. So, um, my line manager, Steve Moore, runs that museum as well. So, I could. You've got him already? Yeah, yeah, we, we, we have him. I mean, we say we have him. We don't like to say that we possess people. Um, but what people don't actually know about the elephant man is that he's not on public display. We sometimes get some complaints saying. He shouldn't be on public display, and he's not, and he never has been. He's only on display for the students and for the um, staff members who are doing studies and teaching about his disorder. There's actually a replica of the elephant man on display in the public museum downstairs. Um, And regarding any other specimens, to be honest, I've got so much to find out about the specimens that we have here, and I'm enjoying every single one of them. I don't really want to take specimens from anywhere else. I'm happy to just keep researching this collection.
1: Okay, so we won't be seeing John Merrick, but we will be looking at what, first of all, what's the the entry point for this collection?
0: What we can do, if you wanted, is we we go by letter here. So we start over at A, which is the bones, and we come right the way around the alphabet.
1: We start at A, which is for bones. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) It doesn't stand for bones. It just is synonymous with bones for some reason. Somebody chose the system long before I came along, so we can start over there.
1: Okay, let's go. And I've got to say, for a museum of this sort, I don't know, I think I was expecting something with a lot more dark wood and dust and shadows. And in fact, it's a really light, almost, yeah, why not, welcoming place. Discreet staircases, a spiral uh, wrought iron staircase in the corner there, getting you up to the upper levels. And uh, we're moving across the light wood parquet floor. (laughs) Uh, And here we are, bones. Right, to the untutored eye. They're bones.
0: Well, I'm going to pick out... Just several specimens, I think, as we walk around, especially the ones with the interesting backstory. Um, At the moment, we're actually working on an augmented reality project and um, purchasing some iPads so that when people come into the museum, they'll be able to simply click on a QR code and they'll get all the information about the specimens. Um, At the moment we just have some bits and pieces up on the walls for people to read and this is one of the ones I wanted to talk about specifically um, it's A14 and it's a really good example of a specimen that I look at when I've got a headache and I'm feeling really sorry for myself and I want to remember what people went through in the Victorian era for example. So this is a woman who was probably born with a cleft palate Um, it's something that's quite easily repaired nowadays but back then it wasn't at all So she would have had a hole in the roof of her mouth. What she's done is she's created a piece of cork and she's actually wedged that into the top of her mouth.
1: Now, I assume that was to aid display, but you're telling me that was there during life?
0: Absolutely, yeah. There's quite a few bits and pieces like that and I'll show you another one shortly. This was there during life and you can even see where she's wrapped some bandages around the cork. That's because the gap in her roof of her mouth has been getting bigger and bigger. So she's had to make the cork bigger and bigger. So if you can imagine that without that cork there there would be nothing to stop her from, from her tongue going straight up into her nose. I mean, it's quite scary what people used to have to put up with.
1: Mm. There's, there's little to be said about that except for sort of <laughs> a, a registering a sense of horror. But I was just wondering, because I'm, I mean, I don't know if we can talk about this, mm. but uh, we, were, we were supposed to record this a good few weeks ago, mm. and you pulled the plug, and for a couple of days we weren't sure why, but I gathered you were ill, mm. and you managed to go blind through a migraine.
0: I did, yeah. One of the main symptoms of a migraine is um, to have some sight deficiency, so um, it's all okay now. It's absolutely fine, but I did get myself some new glasses because I think my uh, my old ones weren't doing me very good. And also, I think sitting at a computer for many, many hours was probably a bad idea.
1: But does this make you, the, the work you're doing here, does this put you more in touch with your physiology
0: it does I mean I'm obsessed with going to the gym you know get my bones nice and strong Um, I eat really well I don't smoke so yeah I think so I think it makes you quite aware of your own mortality and really it just makes me more aware of how delicate everything is in the body and it always has I mean I was a a mortician before this and I was just absolutely astounded at the fragility of a a human body so um, yeah it does put things into perspective
1: Although well, perhaps not as much perspective as being a mortician.
0: Well, it's, it's, a, different, it's a different type of perspective, I think. You know, this is, this is more to do with how people used to suffer so much before. It puts it in perspective when I have a headache, as I say. And I think maybe you shouldn't complain about that. You know, these people suffered a lot more. And I will show you a lot more suffering over the course of this hour.
1: A phrase to warm anyone's heart. Uh, Well, let's move on to the uh, next item.
0: So the next one I'm showing you is another bone specimen. This is A819. So that gives you an indication that we've gone from A14 to A819.
1: That's obviously a jawbone, but a very strangely shaped one to my eye.
0: It is. I mean, again, you can see these little wires in here that look as if they may have been put in there to help with the display, but actually they weren't. This is the jawbone from a boy whose head was caught in a printer press. So back in the Victorian era when you sort of had, you know, nine, ten year olds working in a printing factory, um, this was a roller press and his head was caught in there. The jawbones obviously fractured in two places. Um and this wire was put on while he was alive, um, to keep it together, but subsequently he died.
1: As as a result of these wounds?
0: Yeah, there was a lot of head injury as well associated with it too. And the reason I've shown you this one is because this was the first ever glass specimen that I conserved. Um, and I do prefer the glass pots, and I'd like to have the whole collection in glass eventually. So it's sort of it's nice to look back at the first ones I ever did.
1: You say you prefer them, but to what?
0: To the perspex. The other ones here, oh, these are, these are in perspex or acrylic, um, and they have a lot more problems associated with them than the glass pots do.
1: Good, it would be interesting to hear a bit about that.
0: Well, basically, the glass pots are all completely leak-proof, um, whereas the Perspex ones, because they're rectangular, they their joints are already making them frail, um, and the Perspex itself has micropores in it, so it breathes. So that means that even when you top up the fluid, even if there's no leak, the level will still go down, as you can see here. So they require constant maintenance. When I've conserved a glass pot like this, it should theoretically last another 50 years
1: what other concerns do you have I, I, I guess I feel a little more comfortable in uh, knowing what some of the concerns of uh, for example an art curator might be than the uh, the physics and the chemistry of the paint um, what, what sort of concerns do you have uh, in terms of displaying this stuff
0: I think people think that these pots are much more unsafe than they are um, I do get people come up to me and say oh there may be some fluids leaking over here or where they see that the level is low but the fluids are actually just um, it's Basically, a, a stable sugar water, sugar and salt water. It's more scientific than that. It's glycerol, sodium acetate, and water. But once these specimens have been preserved, they can actually just stay in a buffered solution. So there's no formalin in them. You can add a tiny bit of formaldehyde to keep away any mould. But it certainly isn't just swimming about in formaldehyde. And that is one concern that people have. Um, but we do need to take that into consideration when we let people in here because they're just delicate pots that, you know, they're. they're they can't be handled, they can only be looked at um, and it's not like the Natural History Museum here where everything's behind glass we have to trust that people aren't going to stop dancing or something
1: I was going to say the bottom shelf is probably not even a foot off the ground with glass encased specimens there I'm guessing when a, a toddler comes in you must have alarm bells going off
0: well thankfully because we do our events mainly in the evenings we don't tend to have a lot of toddlers in here um, and it's the same with the Saturday afternoons as I said we sort of cater to a specific specific london clientele of sort of 20 to 40 really um which isn't to say that we don't want toddlers in here and we have had them in for specific events but i think it just means we need to keep our eyes peeled a bit more
1: yes you'd have them all attached to uh, by reins to a central stake or something wouldn't you Uh, let's move uh, further along here Actually, that's, that's interesting. I should pick you up on that age demographic, by the way. Why, why the? Uh, I mean, I, I could make a rude joke about why they might not be visiting it uh, later on in life.
0: <laughs> I think it's just because you know they're the they're the excited Londoners. They're the ones who want to find the new hip events and. They're the ones who want to have a drink and not just sit down and watch Midsummer Murders. They want to learn something totally different. Not that there's anything wrong with Midsummer Murders, I absolutely love that. Um, but I think it's just that they're the more excited, kind of curious demographic.
1: More rampant ageism later on, but meanwhile. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I'm going to show you a few specimens here, which are called avulsions. Now, an avulsion is when a tendon is ripped out of part of the body.
1: I'm just going to steady myself for a moment. Oh, uh, I should describe what we're looking at here. Uh, not that I. Is this, gonna, this is going to be like this, isn't it, today?
0: Well, <laughs> I think so. Yep. It's kind of hard to not have these interesting backstories, so.
1: <laughs> okay, dokie. Uh, so, this one is. It reminds me of a truffle with um, uh, overtones of octopus. Which it doesn't really do it justice But there's two central cords emanating from the object at the bottom there It's a bit uh, difficult to describe really It's got a sort of a skinny quality to it as well Uh, And then these cords go up, they must be uh, getting on for a foot
0: This is a forefinger with its associated tendons um, And it's of a gentleman And he was playing around with a ramrod um, Which shot right out and just ripped his finger off
1: You say ramrod, um, that might not be a familiar term to some people
0: It's a metal device which is used with early firearms and it it pushes the projectile up against the propellant. So basically, if you were to then pull the trigger, it would shoot right back out again. But these avulsions, I mean, I've got three different ones here and I wanted to show you the difference between the pots which have been conserved and the ones which haven't because of the colour of the fluid. But these can happen in all different ways. Um, And one of them, for example, was a butcher from Smithfield Meat Market who got caught on his own butcher's hook and he hung there until the finger was pulled off with the tendon as well.
1: (sighs) Uh, D52 still has the finger or toenail attached to it as well. Mm. Goodness me. Do you know know the story of every item?
0: I don't know the story of every single one of them, but it's what I'm researching at the moment. I'm actually writing a book about the collection as well, so I'm hoping I can sort of bring these stories alive, as it were. Um, And that's why I say, you know, at this point in time, I don't look at other collections and feel jealous and want their specimens because there is so much material here.
1: Mm. No, in, in both senses. Uh, where are we off to next? What, what letter are we up to?
0: So we're up to E now, which is hearts. Um, but I'm just going to...
1: I, I really don't understand this lettering system at all. E no. It should the, be H for hearts. Yeah,
0: no, no. The thing is, you know, you do not all the organs begin with all the different 26 letters of the alphabet. So um, it's just a code that's been applied. I see. The specimens on the upper two floors, which are younger than 100 years old, they can be used by medical students and by allied health professionals such as morticians. Um, And they are grouped completely differently. They're grouped into the categories of the medical school curriculum. So we just simply have five categories, which makes it easier.
1: What are morticians looking at these for?
0: Because they do um, eviscerations of organs um, from patients and it can be quite good to show them What a different, um, you know, a heart would look like if it had a a different condition. So then that way, if they see it in situ, they can go, oh, that's, you know, cardiomegaly or something. Um, So it can be quite valuable for them as well.
1: So it's the mortician's job to to flag up this kind of thing?
0: Yeah, a lot of the time. I mean, obviously, the pathologist is the one who signs off on it in the end, but the mortician and the pathologist, the anatomical pathology technician, I should say, rather than the mortician, they work very closely together. Um, The APT will actually take a lot of the specimens for the pathologist. They'll know ahead of time what they're going to want to take. So it is important for them to recognise these sort of illnesses as well.
1: Uh, Right, I'm getting a a sense of this. So the the pathologist is uh, the sort of line manager and the brains of the operation in official terms. But the the morticians are the hands-on, they know their way around.
0: Yeah, and every single pathologist will work in a slightly different way. And it's for the APT to sort of know ahead of time what the pathologist will probably require you know get the pots labeled up take the specimens for them some specimens can only be taken before um evisceration has actually occurred such as vitreous humor in the eye so um you need to be on the ball with that really
1: oh well maybe this sheds some light on your job title then because you're not a curator you're a technical curator
0: that's right because we have a curator who is professor paula domizio and she is obviously a medical um, doctor and she overlooks the whole collection I'm the technical curator which means that I can serve the pots and repair them but I also organise all the events as well um, so I don't do anything here without her support and ha- with her help as well
1: Okay, well, we're in the uh, curious. The letter, the E for hearts. I might find something else. That's in. I
0: might just take you right, right through to the other side now.
1: We're going to the other side. I should, I should worry when you say we're going to the other side. We're passing skulls. Uh, some of them clearly misshapen. Very handsome one in the middle there. We
0: don't have a lot of information on some of these skulls.
1: I'm not exactly sure what I'm seeing here. Well, this Do I is... need to take a deep breath?
0: Probably, yeah. <laughs> You've got long hair, so yes. <laughs> and all will become clear. Um, this is our, you can see, slightly different lettered um, section ML for medico-legal, which is the old term for forensic, before forensic became sexy. So this is just a small sample of different um, specimens from old court cases and things like that. Um, one of the things that's classed as medico-legal is things that happen at work and we have that nowadays as well anything that's like an accident at work would be classed as forensic here we have a specimen which is similar to the one i showed you before this is the hair and the scalp of a box cutter factory worker she was only 14 years old and what's happened here is her hair has been caught into the machinery similar to the the head and the face of the other one um and it's removed all of the scalp The reason that this is interesting is because she didn't die and it's worth pointing out that just because we have some body parts here doesn't mean that every single person died. Um, And that's also important for regards to the Human Tissue Authority as well because if the person didn't die, even if the specimen is a bit younger than 100 years old, we can still show that to the general public. For the most part, if it's younger than 100 years old,
1: we can't. Because they, they might still be around, relatives may well remember them.
0: Yeah, it's just this sort of arbitrary cut-off point, really. I mean, it depends on what kind of licensing you have and, and all that sort of thing. But we've, I, I've modelled this museum on the one in Berlin, which is very similar. And all of the specimens, older than 100 years old, are all down on the ground floor. And then the younger ones are all on the upper floors. And then you can kind of pay attention to who goes on what floor.
1: What's the, uh, the deal in terms of uh, reasons for uh, bits of people ending up here? Is there um, We seem to have hit quite a few workplace incidents so far. Is, does it tend to be that that's a, uh, a popular reason for shedding parts of your body?
0: I think it's more a case of those kind of accidents were very common over 100 years ago. So down on this floor, we have a lot of these sorts of things. Up on the second floor, you might have things that you would associate with you know, modern culture, such as autoerotic asphyxiation. So I think that's just a case of these are old specimens. Um, but the ones here are literally all sorts. Anything that was unique and interesting, any type of disease, any type of accident or um, a crime, all of those things would have come here because, as I mentioned before, you probably wouldn't see them again. So you would need to have a kind of record of them happening.
1: OK, so I think I've got a weird question cooking here. And it's along the lines of i can't imagine a death that was caused but well I, for a start i can't imagine somebody committing an act of auto erotic asphyxiation more than 100 years ago but i certainly can't imagine them uh, registering it as such because they've got the workhouse to do it for them you know <laughs> yeah. um what is the most perplexing artifact you've got here in terms of it being out of its own time or it, it defying expectations in some way
0: Um, Now that's a difficult one because I would have said and I'm going to show you later my cabinet of curious objects which were found within people's bodies and I would have said I wouldn't expect this from people who were so busy you know working and whatever in the Victorian times but actually it is very indicative of that time period so I think you could be quite shocked by what you would think isn't indicative of a certain culture or time so it's a difficult one to, to answer really and I'll elaborate later as we go and see that cabinet
1: I'm looking forward to that by the way I think everybody should have a cabinet of curious objects that should be mandatory <laughs> just,
0: just don't populate it with objects yourself because you'll be very busy with all your different orifices
1: I don't, I don't really want to know what that is <laughs> um, we're, we're, um, we're just coming up against the sponsorship uh, message from Audible who by the way if you haven't signed up you should have signed up please sign up we're still over with the uh, forensic stuff perhaps we could just fill the uh, dying moments before the commercial break with uh, another item here
0: I would like to show you my specimen just over here this is one of my favourites and I do get asked about this quite a lot Um, and you can see that it's labelled a tight lace as liver
1: which one are we looking at? Oh, the huge one in the cylindrical jar. Yeah.
0: and we've got um, a bit of information regarding this specimen over here as well. And the reason this is interesting to me is because it's quite a rare specimen in that it supposedly shows damage which is caused by prolonged tight-lacing of corsets. Um, it's from 1906, and um, the woman in question wore a corset nearly 24 hours a day. But... Th- It's kind of come under a lot of different scrutiny with different doctors. I have a lot of doctors giving me different opinions about this. Um, And what people had originally said at the time that this post-mortem was done, that this was a deformed liver here with an extra lobe. This has now been called Riedel's accessory lobe by some doctors, which is actually just one of those things that happens. It's, you know, a congenital abnormality. So I think what's interesting about the collection and specimens like this is... It's easy to make assumptions about what pots are, given that we have things written about them at the time. But as science progresses and as people see different things and we share opinions, we learn different things about the pots. Um, So, you know, Dita Fontys need not worry. She's probably absolutely fine, even though she's got her tiny 16-inch waist. Um, So this is the kind of thing that I like to learn and, and update all the time.
1: I didn't think we'd be getting Dita Von Tees in today's program, but uh, we've achieved it. Uh, We're away for a break. We'll be right back after this.
0: Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through.
1: You're listening to Londonist out at at Bart's Pathology Museum. My guest is the technical curator, Carla Valentine, and she's been fiddling with her feet during the break here. She's put one of them in a glass display cabinet up for us to take a look at. And I think you mentioned that this was... Well, we were talking about corsets a moment ago, and this is... Another binding of women. That's
0: right. Another example of um, modification of the human body in order to attract a mate. Uh, And let's
1: let's say particularly the female body, that women are having a rough deal in this museum so far.
0: (laughs) It seems like they are, aren't they? Um, Yeah, this is a particularly gruesome one, actually. Um, And it was done specifically so that Chinese girls could find a decent husband. Um, Chinese feet binding. I mean, this specimen is from 1893, but it went on for about a 1,000 years before that. It was a very long established um, tradition and i think what's really great about these specimens is that we have the soft tissue specimen here but we also have from a separate chinese lady um the skeletal specimen so you can compare the damage that's been done
1: now we without having a, a normal foot to compare it with it's perhaps difficult because i'm not used to looking at the skeleton of feet but we can straight away see that it's crunched up In pretty much every direction Rather than it being more or less flat With a gentle arch This one has the heel barely an inch away From the joints of the toes Oh well now we've Carly you've just brought up What looks like a mummified foot And, well, just to describe, the heel and the joints of the toe there are more like five or six inches away.
0: Yeah, this one that I've just brought over, I mean, it's a gentleman's foot, but it's somebody who had gangrene. So it looks mummified, but it's the same sort of desiccation. But it just shows
1: you... Oh, God, so the illness has done this.
0: Um, Yes, yeah, and then the foot's been removed to kind of show everybody what gangrene looks like, which obviously is quite important because I have a lot of people thinking it's been burned or something similar. Yes,
1: it's, uh, it's almost black, isn't it? Very, very, very rich, dark brown.
0: But it's a good indication of the sort of flatness of the foot arch and how it should look compared to this one here. Um, And you can't bind a foot into that kind of tortuous position without lots and lots of hard work and a lot of pain. And I think when I was researching this specimen, um, the Chinese-bound foot, what really surprised me was how ill it made me feel. And I've seen a lot in my sort of time as a mortician and as a curator here. Um, But it really was quite a gruesome process. And I wrote a blog post about it, but I couldn't even really go into all the details
1: purely because of the 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 feelings you were having uh, towards it
0: well i figured that if i was feeling a bit ill by it a lot of other people may do but i'm sure many of your listeners are now going to be absolutely enthralled to know all the details but the upshot of it is that these feet um had flesh which needed to be removed and they were considered to be you know too fleshy the flesh was considered to be a hindrance to the process so everything that could be done was done to remove the flesh in order to then bind the toes in tighter.
1: What, what do you mean by that?
0: So, things like um, rusty nails would be introduced into the skin, broken glass to cause infection, so that then the tissue would become necrotic. It would, um, similarly in, in this way, you know, to gangrene, it would actually then start to be able to be scraped off and then therefore the toes could be bound in even more. But this was done to girls who were three, four, five years old. Um, It was really quite a barbaric procedure just to create these tiny feet, Um, the whole purpose of which was to illustrate that if somebody had such tiny feet, they couldn't possibly be a working girl a working-class person they must be an aristocrat and therefore they would be able to get a much better husband
1: they presumably have trouble being a, a walking person as well
0: absolutely I mean a lot of the time they were carried around um, the feet look even smaller when they're in in shoes um, because the shoes don't look anything like the kind of shoes that we would wear they're sort of like little pyramid type things so I think it is quite important to um to show this sort of you know barbarism now and it's quite interesting to have the discussion like is it different to body modification nowadays you know scarification and that sort of thing um, and it's an event that we've had here obviously before all about tattooing and different body modification because it's still a debate that, that continues nowadays
1: I'd love you to tell me that this practice has been uh, extinguished once and for all
0: yeah I'm fairly certain it has actually I think around 1900 or something yeah I think it's, it's not something that you'd see nowadays which is why the specimens are so important really
1: Okay, so we're moving on to the next shelf. We did so with you assuring me that uh, happier things, and what I can see here is a diseased, bloated hand, um, a few internal organs, and what looks like a bird's nest, and I know that's not going to be a nice thing.
0: <laughs> We've also got some leprosy as, as well, just to kind of really frighten you. Where,
1: um, have we, where is leprosy?
0: This is the leprosy here. There's two, actually. One of them has the skin removed, just to show what it looks like. I think
1: I'm looking at hands.
0: Yeah, yeah, they are hands. And you can see here, though, that they've been, there's a bit of histology been taken here, so that's why there's a split in the specimen, similar to the one up here. So, a lot of the time um, for studies later on, people will come back into the pots and remove parts of tissue so that they can then do studies on them.
1: The specimen that you were just indicating there is the bloated hand. It looks like green mould on the knuckles. What, what is that?
0: This is just um, congenital elephantiasis, so it's it's a congenital kind of large hand. Um, the green may well be mould, and it's as I mentioned to you before. Um, I use the fluid, which is called Keisling 3, which is the one with the glycerol and the sodium acetate and a tiny bit of formalin for mould, um, before kaiserling began to be used in 1896. It was alcohol um, and different things, so sometimes mould did grow, and that's probably what that is there.
1: Well, let's let's nudge along.
0: So, onto happier things. Um, just you promise. <laughs> we just have a really good example here of a specimen which was um, somebody got in touch with me about because they were doing a thesis all about early surgery, and this is a female. This is a, uh, a uterus, and it's had um, an ovarian cyst removed, but it was the very first operation where the the woman didn't die basically so as you know surgery many years ago was a mm, bit of a 50 50 as to whether or not
1: you would survive a bottle of whiskey and hope for the best
0: exactly yeah so this is a this is a good example of the very first time that um surgery occurred and it was successful and the woman was able to sort of hop out of the hospital well um and it was good so yeah it's nice to show you something that isn't quite so dark and gruesome
1: now uh, <laughs> uh, uh, a bottle of uh, Mr Muscle, what's the relevance to?
0: <laughs> that actually just has glass cleaner in it and that's for me to clean my cabinets, of which I'm actually going to show you now.
1: Oh, so. you, you must spend your entire life cleaning.
0: I, I feel like I do, but then I did that as a mortician as well. It just seems to be something that's, uh, that's involved in a lot of these jobs. So,
1: ah, the, the famous cabinet.
0: This is the cabinet of the uh, yeah, curiosities found within people's orifices. Um, and pro-
1: oh, I didn't understand what you were saying. I, I ah. see, right.
0: <laughs> yes, so these objects date from all sorts of different dates. Um, but the reason they're down on this floor is because they're not human remains. So we can have them down here. And I bring your attention specifically to the torch and the x-ray that we have here. And this is quite a funny story because it was uh, it was removed from the rectum of an eccentric and uncouth looking man aged sixty eight who said that he'd actually been assaulted by two drunken Irishmen who'd pushed the torch in. And on further questioning, the story was considered to be quite improbable. So it's very much one of those, I fell onto the Hoover type stories. Um, But what I like about this specimen is that we not only have the torch, but we have an x-ray that probably somebody just took and kept for the fun of it. Um, And it shows you the torch in situ in uh, in the pelvis.
1: I'm not normally lost for words. I, I feel you should keep going.
0: I can, uh, I can show you another one that's fairly similar. Um,
1: there's, there's a, it's notable that there are a lot of objects here that are about six inches long <laughs>
0: and, and phallic. This one is an anti aircraft shell. <laughs>
1: What sort of mentalist do you... I'm going to say this without fear of libeling someone. What sort of mentalist do you have to be to... Uh, tell me they didn't do what I think they did.
0: Well, it wasn't for the reason that you think, probably. It was because he I suspected had...
1: suspected an enemy up there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he, um, he had piles and he was in the habit of... <laughs> He had piles and he was in the habit of replacing them with the safest of options, the anti-aircraft shell. And this is from the 30s, so it's not, you know, very long ago. Um, and it really is just a great example of the absolute craziness, you know, that, that people will do, whether they it's for sexual reasons or whether it's just because they, you know, they get used to treating themselves like the woman over there with the cork in her head. They get used to doing something and it seems normal.
1: Well, there's treating yourself in uh, every sense. Uh,
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And what's really funny about this cabinet is that we have an awful lot of pins and pencils and long objects that were placed in people's um bladders and found in people's bladders. And my first query was, what on earth was going on? Was there nothing else to do apart from this? But then I spoke to somebody about it and um, you know, people used to have cystitis, they didn't have what we have now, they didn't have medical knowledge. They thought that perhaps the hole was closing over. So that is why I said before, you know, you look at something like this and you think, you know, good grief, this doesn't seem like something Victorians would do. But it makes sense if they were trying to self treat in some way and reopen holes. Um, Unfortunately, pins and things would get lost stuck in the bladder um, and then they would become calcified um, by the sort of the, the crystals in the urine so we have a lot of urinary stones all around here as well which were removed after death
1: do you happen to know whether it's a live show
0: um i'm hoping it's not
1: <laughs> you, you haven't checked
0: but i haven't checked uh, it may be a good idea to get that done not will be on the to-do list <laughs>
1: yes this place is full of surprises <laughs> um, I mean, what, a, what a way to go that would be
0: i know absolutely yeah That's,
1: what a multiple story um <laughs> it's quite clear that this cabinet which contains uh, quite a number of other display items is going to give up uh, even more saucy secrets and uh, interesting things but you you're doing a talk about this aren't you so we won't we won't delve into that right now
0: that's right. I'll be um, presenting as part of Museum Show-off, Um and it is open to the public, so if anybody wants to come along, the talk is actually called It's What's Inside That Counts.
1: I've got to say, I, as I mentioned, I get a lot of your publicity. You're very good at naming things. There's, a, <laughs> there's always a sense of uh, humour going on in this stuff.
0: Uh, <laughs> I think there's just something quite immature about me. I'm not sure where that comes from, but I do love a pun. Do you ever get
1: into difficulties with uh, people who feel that you're not taking death seriously enough
0: I think so I think there's a real sense of people not understanding that we've moved on you know in the same sense that a library used to be you would walk in it would be quieter than a morgue and um, you'd be told to shh nowadays you know you have computers you've got classes virtual reality it's the exact same thing with museums and I think some people don't really want to acknowledge that we are moving on and I think it's important because if you come and hear me speak or hear any of our other lecturers speak or come to our events, we are never flippant and, um, and uncaring about these topics. But with a pun in the title, it gets people's attention. And that's the important thing. And then we get people coming here and seeing the museum in all its absolute glory.
1: Right. So it's, it's irreverence in the hook, but no disrespect in the content.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's really more a case of, you know, we want to appeal to younger generations of people who think museums are boring and libraries are boring and that sort of thing. We want people to come and be involved in medical education, maybe train as doctors, maybe become pathologists, because there is a shortage of pathologists, despite silent witness and how popular it is. Um, and it's important to just get people through the door.
1: In order to avoid one of your future exhibits being elements of a podcast presenter's body, we're going to move gingerly away from the possibly live (laughs) anti-aircraft shell. And you're going to take us to where?
0: Well, I thought um, what I might do is just show you a couple of specimens here in our historical cabinet. And I have alluded to various different um, work-related specimens, Um, and I think one of the things about the collection like this is that it is relevant, and many people will say why do you need to keep these specimens from things 100 years ago? And one I want to just draw your attention to is this um, fossy jaw, and fossy jaw comes obviously from the word phosphate It was to do with uh, matchmaking and it was something that was suffered by the women and the men that worked in the match factories in the East End, so not far from here Um, very specific to the time, horrible sort of disease that caused pus to come out of the jaw. People's jaws would actually be removed. These specimens, again, good examples of people who were still alive but had to have their jaw removed.
1: This is the uh, the mandible.
0: That's right. Yeah, the lower um, the lower aspect of the jaw, um, and it was indicative of that time you know and obviously a lot of changes occurred because of that disease
1: well, However, what, what caused it how did that work
0: it's because phosphate is just a very very dangerous chemical um in, you know in, it's it's like a ra- radiation similar sort of thing um and what's interesting about this specimen was that i had an email from somebody about a year ago who said that she was doing um some research into fossey jaw because it happened again in the sort of 1980s and i don't know if you remember when people used to wear those watches and at the tips of the watches they'd have the little tiny bit of the ne- like the neon sort of phosphorescent glow for when it was dark. And what the painters were doing where they were dipping their brushes into the phosphate, painting them, and then they were putting the brush into their mouth to pull the um, bristles closed again to make it... And they were just doing that, just day in, day out, day in. And this came back again, Fosse Dual. And without specimens like this, you wouldn't be able to study it and see what was possibly going to happen because of this phosphate exposure.
1: The other items uh, that we can see here, you've been lucky enough to get some aliens.
0: <laughs> it does look rather like that to the uh, to the untrained eye, but really what these are are just examples of um, they're very small children's skeletons, but they have different. Um different things wrong with them so one of them here has got is hydrocephalus which is water on the brain um and then obviously that compares to a normal
1: skeleton just because the the skulls there are are enormous aren't they
0: yeah absolutely um and you know sometimes there's no point to showing something that's abnormal without having something normal to compare it to um and so then next to that we have um a child that's suffering with dwarfism so that you can see is very small so we've got the the contrast between the normal and then the two abnormal
1: do we know uh, how old the uh, the dwarf child is
0: no, we just um, just says fetal skeleton for those, so we don't really have the info for that.
1: Quite a depressing <laughs> moment <laughs> in the uh, in the tour, and I notice we've got some full size skeletons next door.
0: Uh, these again, they've not been conserved or anything, yeah. so we can't really go into too much detail about those. So
1: are these just set dressing
0: kind of no the thing is we couldn't we can't move them anywhere because they wouldn't be safe so um at the moment we're in the process of getting sort of a, a skeleton expert just to come and uh, rehang them and clean them up a little bit for us
1: well, that's, um, that is a whistle-stop tour of the ground floor, and we've got two tiers to go and uh, a very short amount of time to really pick at the highlights. I can
0: only really take you to... I can probably give you a couple more specimens on the second, but the third one is completely inaccessible at the moment. I'm in the process of conserving the second floor, and you can just see there's some gaps over there where I've come full circle.
1: How long has that taken
0: you? Um, Well it's taken me nearly two years, there's 5,000 specimens in this museum Um, but I'm hoping to have the rest of this floor finished by the very beginning of April um, definitely by May and what we're hoping to do is open the museum for one afternoon a week to the general public to come in and out, so not for events um, only for the ground floor for the moment but they'll be able to see the scale of the rest of the museum
1: you mentioned the events there, and uh, of course, there is the, the the big one. Um, it's the, the the swan song of a series.
0: <laughs> That's right, yeah, and it's the Death Salon UK. It's a three day conference on the culture of mortality and mourning, um, and I am organising that with um, three US ladies: Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris, Megan Rosenbloom and Caitlin Doty.
1: And, and what are those guys?
0: So Caitlin um, became quite famous for her website, Ask a Mortician, which was the first of its kind, really, on the internet, where people could see her on YouTube and ask questions. So, for example, the classic ones, do the hair and nails grow after death and that sort of thing. Um, she's a qualified mortician, and she works a lot with uh, natural burials and uh, alternative funerals. Um, Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris is a medical historian. She's been here quite a few times to do lectures. Um, very famous for her love and knowledge of syphilis, of which we do have a few specimens here, but I will leave it to Lindsay to discuss those in her blog. Um, she's known as the Surgeon's Apprentice, and that's the name of her blog. And Megan Rosenbloom is a librarian, a medical school librarian, who created the Death Salon with caitlin Doty. so the whole point was to bring together people from all walks of life and not just academic um because it's important that artists and musicians and writers who are all considering mortality um all get to come together and discuss their views and learn from each other and as i mentioned before i think a multi-demographic approach is much better
1: yeah, you mentioned the uh, demographics of it. I can't help noticing that that's all female names.
0: It is actually, and it's very strange that you ask me that because um, there has been a real shift in death culture over the last few years to include a lot of women, and the men seem to be, you know, getting booted out a little bit. Obviously, not completely. i have got a lot of male speakers for death salon. Um, but as an example, you know, as an apt a mortuary technician, I used to be surrounded by men in the early days, and most of the qualified ones were men. Um, by the time I left. My whole team was seven women. Um, bereavement officers all seem to be women. The famous taxidermists that you see now, um, such as our Amanda Sutton, um, all women. And people are actually finding it quite hard to find men who are interested in this area.
1: Oh, that's interesting. So it's not it's not merely the science merely, it's not uh, merely the science side of it. It's r- right across the board.
0: Mm, yeah, and I wonder whether it's um, partly because women are now more equal when it comes to careers you know there's nothing to say that maybe women didn't want to be morticians 50 years ago or whatever but they just couldn't because that wasn't the way that careers worked as we all know perhaps it's something to do with the links between you know the maternity, you've got your maternity which is the beginning of life and you know then you've got the end of life is death perhaps it's something to do with that um, women having a more caring nature and wanting to be involved in bereavement and things
1: Are you Are suggesting men aren't caring?
0: Well you know some men <laughs> no I'm just kind of exploring the different aspects you know because it is quite interesting that men seem to be happy to to go with the flow and do the death industry as it was the funeral directors all men the women seem to be the ones like um pia interlandi for example who are creating new and um, burial shrouds that are um able to be decomposed you know um
1: well, hold on so on, on one level then what i'm hearing is that the uh, of course it would with a change of uh, faces and personnel but the the industry itself has morphed quite dramatically
0: yeah absolutely because now there's just people are able to kind of carve out niches for themselves and obviously more research goes on and things aren't just done the way they were before you know people don't just get buried with the undertaker that their nan was buried with anymore because we have the internet and people can look at different options you know green burials have really become you know they're on the rise um and it's a lot of it is what i'm very interested in for example um the fact that many people don't know what is legally required for a funeral um and they're sort of told you need to do this you need to do that and and really people need to be educated so that's why we wanted to have death salon and the first day in particular is all about the way you can do funerals that you know in your own way
1: Well, the thing that strikes me there under a sort of a headline of death is now feminine is the idea of uh, relating a lot and all the different aspects in which communication and interpersonal skills which you wouldn't naturally think of in you know when mm. one of the parties is stone cold yeah. are actually <laughs> yeah, being brought to bear yeah
0: exactly I mean it's just it's a different way of looking at it I think and you know time will tell how successful people are in implementing these changes um but for the moment it does seem to be quite female driven and obviously as a woman I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that but but um you know it is it's nice to we, we we've got a 50-50 split with male and female speakers speakers and um, it's just going to be a really good opportunity for academics and, and artists and, and writers to all get together.
1: Good so as an industry you've got something to uh, show to other industries this is the way forward.
0: Yeah absolutely. Good <laughs> uh,
1: we've just got a few minutes left to cram in a couple of other artefacts. Yeah, yeah okay. please. We'll
0: go upstairs Ooh, I'm attached to
1: now, the rules of the game on this second level are slightly different and we can't uh, go into it... We, oh, fortunately, we don't have a TV camera with us because we, we can't do the visual side of it. Have we mentioned why that is?
0: I think with the forensic specimens, they're a lot younger than the um, the ones downstairs. So, of course, there's always the chance that somebody may hear a story and know that it's something that happened to their grandfather or similar. So we just have to be a bit more careful and just a bit more aware, you know, that these are people, these are their lives um, and it's not really somewhere to be flippant.
1: I can't help noticing that the item out of place on all of these cases is this uh, four or five inch dagger.
0: A lot of these are murders that happened um you know sort of 50 years ago um i won't say the names of the murders just in case but what we do with the forensic specimens is that we have the wounds that were caused and the weapons that caused them so then that way we've got a comparison and then in future if people see wounds that look like this they may be able to say we're looking for a knife like that all
1: oh, right so this is back to uh, that you know that illustration i think it's a woodcut of wound man from hundreds of years ago
0: absolutely uh, um just showing all the different ways in which the um yeah the blunt objects and the sharp objects can cause different injuries Um, and for example with this one here you've got a collection of gunshot wounds but these are entry and exit wounds so these can be important for people learning forensics to understand the difference
1: Well this must be a very unusual collection. I I mean are other people storing the uh, physical remnants of these crimes?
0: Well you'll find similar things in places such as the Gordon Museum which is the pathology museum over at King's Um, but that doesn't have Public in there at all? Um, It's really just for students. So the difference is here that we sometimes have forensic courses as as part of the university, and people can come and use the specimens for that. And Really all of these things are for education, for the training of new forensic specialists, but they're, they're also taken as part of the, um, the legal defence. So you may need to keep a specimen for sort of 10 years. For example, if a murder victim had a wound, you would keep the specimen because at some point 10 years later, you may find another victim of the same killer and you may need to make a comparison. So the specimens like this aren't taken flippantly, they're taken for a reason.
1: And uh, we're we're moving along the gallery. I
0: think all these stories are probably a bit too gruesome to talk to you about, really. Really? Probably. And also maybe people will recognise the story, so I'm just trying to... Mm.
1: You you can only imagine, listener, uh, what is before us at this moment. Perhaps we could finish uh, by talking about one of these barbiturate stomachs.
0: We use specimens such as this in the Marilyn Monroe event that we had, but the reason that this one in particular is interesting is because it illustrates the stomach here, and in the little compartment at the top are the undigested barbiturate pills. So the person who's killed themselves, taken the barbiturates, and within a short length of time they've died. And once that's happened, the pills then can't be dissolved, and they're left in the stomach. Now, interestingly, when Marilyn Monroe was found, she didn't have any pills in her stomach. So when we had our lecture here, it was quite interesting to hear the sort of opinions of the pharmacologist as to, hmm, the only way that may happen would be an injection of barbiturates. And she's not very likely to have given herself an injection and then left an empty tub of barbiturate pills next to her quite conveniently. So I think really just to illustrate is these are so good for trying to flesh out the stories and trying to find answers to questions, even to things such as Marilyn Monroe's death. You know, it's not all about just boring text in a book, you know, this This place will bring pathology alive
1: yeah, we well have stirred up the nest, we, we need more bees now what, what are we talking about? What's, what's, what's the suggestion with Munro?
0: Well, that she was very likely killed, wasn't she? In my opinion. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's what we—that was the general consensus that we all came to during the event, um, and using specimens such as this.
1: Well, that, I really didn't expect to finish on that note.
0: <laughs> it's really um, random uh, <laughs> to finish on.
1: <laughs> But there we go. Oh, it's...
0: I, I can't comment on. I'm afraid. <laughs> Damn.
1: <laughs> what a letdown. Well. Thank you for uh, hosting what has been, for me, quite a surprising episode of the show. And we're still too close to that shell. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think we should retire to the office and get part I... of the way. Yes,
1: okay. <laughs> Carla Valentine from uh, Bart's Pathology Museum. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you very much. My heart
1: aches cut that's all for this week, my thanks for this week to Color Valentine. Thanks to, to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and in incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolf.